AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 13th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we have some special guests. Uh, we're first joined by James Whitchurch. Yes. James, you are the VP for engineering at Bluecoat. Uh, welcome, thank you for joining us. What do you do there? I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, I am responsible for a number of products, uh, in particular our cloud web security service. Uh, and some content inspection capabilities, client mobility, and uh, some supporting products, uh, reporting and management. Again, welcome. We really look forward to your discussion here today. I'm sure you provide some uh, perspective that we really haven't had on the program before, so I'm very much looking forward to it. We have Chris Larson here, and Chris, you lead the Web Pulse Research Analysis Center. Did I get that relatively yeah, correct? Close, yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, again, with Bluecoat, and uh, please tell me, what, what's your role? So our team is basically looking at the web traffic logs from all of our customer base uh, with the goal of identifying things that look unusual mm -hmm. and then zeroing in to decide, is this something that's bad or not? And mm -hmm. if it is bad, malware, dangerous, what kind of danger? Mm -hmm. And then can we build systems to automatically detect and track those? Okay. Now, for folks that may not be familiar with Bluecoat, I, I guess the context might be helpful here. Uh, you know, I tend to think of Bluecoat as predominantly a, a proxy company. I guess that's, that is screening access to the internet from an enterprise for, for the most part and uh, trying to ascertain or at least uh, provide some feedback as to whether it's a good thing to visit there or a bad thing to visit there and then ca categorizing those sites. Do I have that? Relatively correct? Yeah, that's relatively correct. We also have some other products in the portfolio, including uh, forensics capabilities that are important for tracking threats that may already be in your network and mm -hmm. doing bad things to uh, the company or the employees. All right, good. Yeah, I, I bring that up predominantly to make sure that as we're discussing things here today, you have a specific perspective that I think is going to be, again, I think is going to be very valuable and it's going to be helpful to understand where you're coming from. Uh, we also have Matt Kaiser here today, and uh, for those that are familiar with the program, certainly, uh, Matt, welcome. You. <laughs> You're familiar with uh, Matt Kaiser. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's get right into it here. And uh, I guess the first thing we're going to talk about, Matt, can you uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, I guess what we are often talking about, Windows vulnerabilities. We've been talking about the, uh, the exploits against, uh, or potential exploits against mobile devices, but Mac's also in the mix here. Yeah, Macs don't get as much of the attention as they probably should, I think. They're a much more popular brand in the last decade or so, and I think um, a lot more attention is being paid to them in the last few years, uh, but not quite pierced into the, the, the consciousness yet. A really good talk coming out of uh, 31C3, the Chaos Communication Congress this year. Trammell Hudson did some work using the Thunderbolt connector, which is a high-speed bus on several Apple products, to actually install malicious firmware. And I'm not talking about, you know, mm -hmm. malicious software or... This is at the firmware level. This is before the operating system even boots. Now, this is some serious work. They're calling it Thunderstrike. And it, it takes advantage of a number of interesting flaws that Trammell was able to, to find in, in the platform. The most interesting to, to me is that there's a function uh, called option ROMs, which is from back in the old Intel 8088 days, where you could plug in a physical chip into the motherboard 
and that would add on extra functionality like support for basic or some other, some other code. Apparently this is still part of the spec and Thunderbolt is, it allows you to directly access certain functions during boot and I, I'm, not give, I'm not doing it justice because it's, it's nuanced and it's, it's delicate and it's interesting. But basically you can devise a device using Thunderbolt that you plug in, it interrupts a firmware update in the recovery mode rewrites an RSA key with a pre-chosen one you've de determined, and then you push it firmware that you've signed with that key. So now you not only change the, the boot protection key that, that verifies the firmware, you're rewriting the whole firmware and you control it from the ground up. And it's authorized. And it's authorized. <laughs> and no one else can, can update any more firmware because you've changed that key. So, I mean, there's so a really... Best you've bricked the device, right? <laughs> ransomware of sorts? Uh, if you were, it, it requires physical access, and that's the difference. Most ransomware we see is over the internet right. installation. Right. And there's no way to, to, to do this from software that's been developed yet. It requires that physical access. Mm -hmm. That's the key point. But, right. I mean, as people have been discussing for years, if you have an evil maid attack where someone leaves their laptop in the hotel room and mm -hmm. takes a few seconds for this to happen, or maybe it's out of your sight for five seconds at an airport, checkpoint mm -hmm. or something like that. It's very possible for this to happen and it's very difficult or nigh impossible to detect. And the only way to protect yourself against it is to, in a, a, so far, is to actually perform the attack on yourself and change the key. Wow. Which is, it's crazy. So I was going to say, or super glue the Thunderbolt port. Yeah, well, that's, that's <laughs> not, there's, there's, there's actually some interesting discussion yeah. of physical defenses against it, you know, filling in your ports, right. using, um, it was interesting. Some developed or came up with the idea of using like fleck nail polish with a certain pattern. So you, you for uh, security, if you want to prevent tampering with screws or other mm -hmm. things, you use this pattern nail polish. And you photograph the pattern because it's rel relatively random. Mm -hmm. If someone were to decide to paint over it again with that same nail polish, no two patterns would be the same. Mm -hmm. So I mean, there's a whole great discussion of this physical, physical security defenses against it too. But yeah. this was some excellent work. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. You know, so this is this is research work, correct? This yeah. is not something that's in the wild, but it's something we need to be considering. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I can't help but date myself here a little bit, but I remember when it used to be you actually had to flip a switch to be able to actually change the BIOS mm -hmm. <laughs> or actually yeah. change the chip. switches. On and the you know, I think that's perhaps where we really need to go to. That is, how often do you really need to flash the BIOS, really update the BIOS? If you're going to do it, it should be something that is hard is well do. controlled, hard to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, not. Hard, right. perhaps, is not the word we're looking for, <laughs> but control. a high barrier control. control yes, yeah. the barrier. And that's that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's okay. and I can't help it. To, you know, you mentioned the uh, the, uh, the the nail, nail polish. polish thing. It reminds me of the one of the James Bond movies where he takes a hair and he puts oh, it yeah, across exactly the door. Right. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> or a piece of paper or a toothpick. <laughs> right. So yeah, good story, Matt. Thank yeah. you for bringing that. And so uh, on the, along the lines of like complex and uh, really you know sophisticated attacks, research is one thing. Something that's actually in the wild. Uh, you did a blog on the Inception framework. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this was. Uh, it was fun. It was a cooperative investigation with um, one of the researchers from our Norman Shark team in mm -hmm. Norway and one of the guys on the WebPulse team. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the WebPulse side, we look more at traffic on, on, the, on the attack, and then the Norman guys are more about hardcore binary reversing. And so they worked as a team to take this apart. And it started basically with an interesting malware sample that showed up, and they had an email with it. And so it was a spear phishing based attack, mm -hmm. RTF document 
using a new uh, Windows vulnerability um, or a Microsoft vulnerability, a CVE 2014, and a vulnerability from 2012. So both in the same document, and mm -hmm. so the. Now was that the? Do you think that was to try to get all the? Cover the bases, you know. <laughs> okay. you, you increase the. If, if right. you can, if you can do that, if you can bundle multiple, it's the same as an exploit kit on a website. If you can, mm -hmm. rather than just have one attack and that better work or it doesn't work, if you can have six or seven or eight different exploits that you target, you increase the yield of your attack. Get the ones that are up to date in patchers, and also get the ones that uh, just don't. Plus, <laughs> plus, if, if you've got a zero-day exploit in your bad guy, you don't necessarily want to burn that right. unless you have to. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's nice if you can infect with a neat, with a simple exploit, then you don't you keep more of your cards close to right. your vest. Okay. The, the thing I found interesting about this particular attack as a, a guy who's been doing engineering management for a number of years is the complexity, mm -hmm. the uh, depth and breadth of knowledge that the attackers had to possess in order to actually, what I think of, architect, design, organize. They probably had requirements documents. I don't know if they have a product manager but they went to a great deal of trouble to not only ensure that it was very stable right. so that it wouldn't be detectable, it was uh, hosting uh, itself on uh, servers that were out there publicly available to other people, and mm -hmm. uh, they went to a lot of trouble to uh, evade any kind of detection or trace back to whoever the uh, authors were of this particular uh, APT. So, it, to me, I thought, okay, that's an organization that's going to cost money, you're paying mm -hmm. salaries, people are coming to work, they're whiteboarding designs, uh, very, very involved. And the thing that was doubly interesting is that they built it in such a way that it, it's pluggable, they could upgrade their software, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it looked to be flexible enough that they could migrate it to different platforms. And in the pervasiveness, they covered all their bases in terms of Windows and obviously uh, Blackberry, iOS, uh, Android. Lastly, they were the kind of information they were looking for wasn't your credit cards or uh, social security numbers. It was more along the lines of uh, being able to listen to phone calls, hmm. being able to uh, gather contact information, those sorts of things. Wow. So, uh, I, I, I mean, I guess one of the things that I, I don't want to detract from the, the, the points you're making here, but in fact, I want to hopefully reinforce it. I think one of the things that tends to get overlooked is that it's not just the malware. It's all of the coordination around a sophisticated attack, the distribution activities. Even in some cases, let's take the, the Sony Pictures case as an example, just the coordination of what becomes public, when it becomes public, how you present that, is something that has to be thought through. It's, and it's a different kind of person than is sitting down at the keyboard actually person. creating, yeah, it's a, it's a marketing person. <laughs> it's malware. Yeah. Right? And so I, I think that's one of the uh, sort of indicators that we really need to be paying a little more attention to. I haven't seen a lot of discussion about in terms of making an, you know, a distinction between what is really a, a, an advanced attack versus a, a, you know, just a hacker activity. So yeah. Yeah, the, the reason they named it Inception is when they they found the samples were beaconing home to a Swedish cloud host, CloudMe, mm -hmm. and so okay, that's layer one, right? Mm -hmm. So they, we actually contacted CloudMe and said, hey, you have some accounts that are bogus accounts on your service, and they are they're being used as command and control. There are these infected machines connecting and then downloading payload updates, mm -hmm. and so CloudMe worked with us, and we said, where is that traffic coming from? So they shared some of snippets of the logs with us. And the next layer was, was routers. 
from, from home and small business mm. uh, things. So, and mostly in South Korea, interestingly enough. And so there were these hacked routers that the bad guys were connecting to the router and then using that to send encrypted traffic to the CloudMe account. Mm -hmm. And so then getting our hands on some of the router traffic, so well, where's that coming from? Well, that's coming from the servers from various internet providers that have just rented servers. Mm -hmm. Well, where's that traffic? Well, you don't know. Now, you, know you, you run out yeah. of, of layers that you can work through, and right. the bad guys were somewhere behind that. Wow. Who knows how many more layers, right? right? And so I said, right. well, this is like that Inception movie where it's just like you're a dream within a dream within a dream. They, <laughs> yeah. They've gone to such great pains to separate those layers to just avoid any possibility of identifying who they are. Yeah, interesting uh, routers were a part of that because I don't know too many routers that do a very good job at logging the ed events yes. that are going through it. So what, what we suspect it was uh, default password. So mm -hmm. if you haven't heard that before, uh, set your password to something other than the default. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we, we've never encountered any case where default password would be. No. Yeah, no, yeah. Nobody does that. I mean, yeah. that, I mean this is, a, 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 you know, obviously the, the concern here is that a lot of devices get put on the net. Uh, in fact, sometimes they don't even tell you they, they have those passwords available. You have to actually go digging for it. And so, uh, you know, for most people, they buy a, a device, they stick it on a network, and they expect it to be secure. and. Yeah, people want you know, it to just work, number one. They want to be able to, to plug just work. and play. Yeah. Right. So, very good story. Thank you. Any? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say, actually, before yeah. we go on, it was interesting. I read the article, and the links they went to to disguise their yes. origin as well, not just their physical origin, yes. but the country of origin. There are so many different little right. red herrings that they inserted into it. Yes. And they could have, you know, one red herring is probably fine. Two is, you know, more of a, a case against it. Like seven or eight or nine in there. It sounds like they're just point. You know, they're just they poking were, fun at us. They at were that point. covering. They yeah. were covering all their bases. Very, very mm -hmm. thorough. Yeah, that was that was pretty impressive. Yeah, and, and again, it wasn't just the basic stuff. So yeah. you you can set the time stamp on a piece of software that you've built. Right. You can even go in and set the time stamp on individual modules that get compiled. These guys had gone to the lengths of they were using a random number generator and they were using a date timestamp to set the initial seed for the random number generator. No kidding. And so our guys thought, aha, now we know yeah. when it was really compiled. Because one of the tricks is you try to match that to a working nine to five sort of working day, where in the world was this built? Right. And they found out that the bad guys had actually cheated there in case someone looked. They had generated date timestamps for the random number generator, but they'd used future dates. No kidding. Just as a way to thumb your nose and yeah. say, yeah, if yep. you guys think to check this, we already <laughs> thought of that. Which, back to the organizational element, indicates mm -hmm. that they have the minds of researchers right. that are uh, part of their design process. Mm -hmm. They have to be thinking like the guys who are going to discover them. And, yeah. they, and they expected researchers to find bits and pieces of this and to start poking around. Mm -hmm. And so they were aware of that. They were watching for the researchers yeah. to connect to the CloudMe accounts and they started putting bogus things there to be downloaded if mm -hmm. they thought you were a researcher. So oh. suddenly, this Chinese yeah. back door shows up and our guys got really caught. Look at this, they stuck some Chinese malware in there and, and for the first hour or so, they're like, oh man, maybe it is the Chinese. And then they did some more poking at, no, nah, it can't be. This is a red herring that they knew we were researchers and they dropped that for yeah. us. You know, probably a little out of scope for discussion here, but it'd be an interesting debate why somebody would be so bent on creating effectively no attribution as opposed to perhaps misdirecting and suggesting uh, a, a, a false attribution, for example. Well, some of the early documents give us clues to that because we were talking about embassies, militaries, governments, 
political uh, sites and those mm -hmm. sorts of things. So maybe there's some uh, government espionage taking place as a result of this. Oh yeah, I mean, a, a good possibility. I guess yeah. the question is, you know, it is the biggest indicator who is targeted and who isn't. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. See, that's why we disagree. James thinks it was a nation state. I think it was cyber criminals. And in my mind, a nation state would have done more false attribution to try and finger somebody else as the nation state doing it. That. <laughs> but, but, but the, the one Chinese that wasn't that wasn't for these guys that wasn't enough. That yeah, was them just making fun of the researchers. They, right. the, the the idea of changing the date time stamp for the random number seeds to a future value that, that that's devious. Yeah. Yeah. The Chinese thing was just obvious. It's like, it was that wasn't devious enough. Yeah. Matt, you would have done that, wouldn't you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go back to you, Matt. Here and uh, let's you know. I guess. In the uh, the context of Divi's complex and intriguing, mm -hmm. skeleton key, skeleton key, new new kind of malware here. This one's pretty interesting. Uh, Dell SecureWorks put up an article about this. They discovered uh, a malware sample that is ephemeral, pretty much. The way that it gets installed is they use um, an, it requires an administrator account to set up, mm -hmm. and you use the psexec function to remotely run this code on another computer, usually on a, a Active Directory controller. What it does is it inserts itself into memory in the LSASS process, which is used for authentication. Mm -hmm. And what it actually does is it, it backdoors that process and allows you to log in as pretty much any user you choose. And what's interesting about that is that it never touches disk. Mm -hmm. The operators would delete the malware from where it was originally, and it would stay resident in memory on this Active Directory controller, which, as which we all- Which could stay up indefinitely. Exactly, because those are designed to have high uptime because they serve so many different places. Not only can you now log into the AD controller with this account, you can also affect other machines that log into through the AD controller. So this is kind of like a master key or skeleton key, which is why they called it that, for the entire AD structure. And it's very, very hard to detect once it's installed. Right. So this, this is a little bit scary because it's very hard to find something like this unless you're looking at the memory of the system itself. Mm -hmm. Or if you're logging for PS exec calls, which are not that uncommon in a large um, corporate, you know, maybe admins are using it for legitimate purposes, but it's it's a lot harder to find than other malware, so it's a little bit scary. Any indications that they were exfiltrating uh, passwords, user IDs, those sorts of things? There, or? there isn't any network traffic associated with the malware itself, so it's okay. not as if this is in there as an implant beaconing out. This is really just there to provide that functionality. It, it does almost nothing but that, and then the other for now. For now, yes, <laughs> yeah. that's true. That's true. Yeah. So the, the story didn't really provide the full context. It was really, is that correct? It, it, it was, they were kind of tight-lipped on the details of who the victims were and mm -hmm. why it was there. But I mean, it's, it's, it's clear to me that this is a master key to the whole company once you've got it installed. Right. And so I think the, uh, the, the typical scenario is, you know, take the, uh, they've got to get into the enterprise as a starting point. Yep. Typically a spearfish or something along those, what, along those lines. Get access to a, work, access to a workstation, perhaps do some password cracking in the administrative role. Use that to move laterally across the enterprise. Get into some of the critical systems, and then this is the place where you'd implant something like that, and it really entrenches your, the uh, the attackers. Yep. Very difficult if you don't know how they're getting around. It's going to be difficult to kick them out once that that kind of thing occurs. And uh, then they've got basically free reign to look like. And if it you know if it looks like a particular user is getting tracked, you move to a different user and make yep. it you know look like that user is doing something they would typically be doing. 
So uh, very challenging situation, and the one that uh, certainly we want to be paying, you know, some attention to going forward, to uh, find some ways around these kind of these kinds of problems. So Definitely. It, we're really starting to get, I think, some insight into what sophisticated attack really means. Um, you know, I, I think even a year ago, these kinds of things. I know I, I've been in working in security for a long time, and we've been pontificating about these these eventualities and now it's really coming into the uh, into reality and so it's a matter of managing uh, protective measures against these kinds of attacks it, it is becoming more common to see malware that doesn't have a disk artifact it mm -hmm. didn't come in as an application on the disk and load from the disk where an AV program could see it it was injected directly into memory and that's mm -hmm. where it lives yeah absolutely. James let's go back to you here um, you did some analysis, one day wonders, you know, the kinds of uh, domains that come and go. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into, uh, you know, what instigated the analysis and where do we go from here? Well, I'll, I'll kick it off and then I'm going to turn it over to actually Chris, who did all the hard work on this one. <laughs> okay, well, Chris and Tim, a couple of our researchers. But obviously, one of the things we try to look for as part of looking for what the bad guys are up to is normal versus what's abnormal. Right. And so, you know, the the, uh, net, the internet is a very complex place and so mm -hmm. uh, what is normal is a little bit difficult, difficult to be able to uh, describe, but we encountered uh, situations where there were a large number of uh, hosts that were very infrequently visited, in fact, down to about one a day. Then we got curious about why we would, they would have such low traffic. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to turn it over to Chris to talk to you about uh, why he decided that he needed to look into that. Um, well, one of my rules for deciding is this going to be a good blog post or not is did it surprise me? Mm -hmm. and, and both pieces of this research did. One was looking at levels of traffic to sites and you know that things like Google and Twitter and Facebook are going to have a ton of traffic every hour, right. every day. There are other sites that, that'll be more cyclical, where they, they, they are in one country and most of their users are there, so it'll follow more of a business day type of pattern. Mm -hmm. Other sites are really infrequent and won't show up even every day. And so Tim, my colleague, was, was working on basically a blue coat Alexa to build a ranking for popularity of sites. And he said, check this out. So over a 90-day period, we had about 660 million unique hosts, where mm -hmm. that's IP, subdomain, or domain level, the, the root of the URL. And out of those, over two-thirds only occurred one of the 90 days. And that was a jaw-dropping moment for me. I know there's all sorts of transient stuff out there. I had no idea it was that bad. Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Two -thirds. Actually, 71% yeah. if you're wow. being yeah. Lots yeah. Of It's actually normal. more than two-thirds. <laughs> and so we immediately went, oh. What is that? Yeah. And started digging. And the good news is that most of that is not malicious. It's legitimate use. Uh, Google and other content delivery networks, apparently to make their network work smoothly, if you have users all over the planet and servers all over the yeah. planet, and this guy wants to see this image, which box serves it to him. So they're coding these long subdomains with letters and digits and mm -hmm. dashes, apparently as a signal to say, OK, this is the server for this guy on this session on this topic. Right. And there's millions of those. Mm -hmm. So the top five were all content delivery networks. Okay. And then beyond that, you start to hit the blogs, Tumblr, Blogspot, WordPress, where there are a lot of blogs that are so infrequently referenced 
that they show up once in three months across our customer mm -hmm. base. So perhaps they shouldn't give up their day job. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll give a shout out yeah. to one of the One Day Wonders. It's dudesinstartupshirts.tumblr.com. And it literally is just a photo blog of pictures of normal white engineer nerds in right. Silicon Valley wearing their company logo shirts. Yeah, like this go. would qualify, right? Yeah. I, I could be a nerd on, on that blog, but that, that yeah. got hit one day out of 90. Yeah. And in You're a month, I want you to go look out. and see how many after this program ha uh, have visited that <laughs> site, okay? And then, so the other side is the one hit wonders. Mm -hmm. These are things that in a 24-hour period get one, maybe two requests across all of our customer base. And mm -hmm. again, interestingly, it was about two-thirds of the millions of things that had traffic that weren't in our database already. So the interesting things, I call mm -hmm. them and about two-thirds were one-hit wonders. And yes, there's malicious stuff in there. A lot of those also were blogs, but there are bad guy operations like spammers need to chew mm -hmm. through a lot of hosts every day. There are exploit kit operators where the attack domains have to be frequently changed out. There's so search it, engine poisoning. There's lots of guys that need yeah. lots of domains on a rapid cycle basis. Yeah, just to, to clarify, I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier. So the spammers, they need to be able to just kind of, they're, they're attempting to bypass the spam filters. Yeah. And, and in effect, they've been blacklisted because they were discovered on a, on a particular day after they delivered, mm -hmm. of course, and now they need to rotate through so that uh, they can't avoid detection. Right. Yeah, so evasion is part of it, right? As soon as you send out that spam, the spam filtering companies, they're on that. They, their right. sensors pick it up and they get that domain blacklisted pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. it's not even once a day. You've got to change your domain multiple times. Yeah. And then once you've used it, you throw it away because everybody's blocking it. Yeah. But evasion is not all of the story. Part of it is analytics mm -hmm. and, and tracking. You want to be able to distinguish which user is clicking on which spam. Um, and so there's, if you're naming right. each subdomain level with a unique code, you can do that sort of tracking and analytics. Identifying where you're successful and where you're not successful. Who's actually received messages versus inclined to click on it. Yeah. <laughs> Inception actually used a similar uh, methodology right. for them to be able to determine where they were getting uh, data, uh, reaping the fruits of their hard work. Right, right. So uh, I guess for I mean, the good news of that, you know, we have a, an internal slogan in terms of uh, in, in educating our employees. Uh, we call it "You Are the Firewall." One of the pieces of advice we give for folks that receive a suspicious email is to look at the URL and see what the domain name is on there. Does it look like it's a logical name? And this is one thing that helps us in the sense that they're forced to use different uh, domains regularly. You're helping with that, <laughs> and to uh, to uh, give folks the opportunity to uh, do the second, you know, put put it through the human filter. Yeah, Ho hover your mouse on the link and see right. if the domain matches. On a on a mobile, a lot of people aren't aware of press and hold. Where if there's a link, you mm -hmm. can on most phones you can press and hold. Actually, a good point. And yes. it will display the actual link because it's easy to forge the apparent destination, mm -hmm. but the browser will show you the actual destination with that. Right, so I guess a little bit of a clarification on that. Um, it, oftentimes on mobile devices, the what you can actually see of the URL is cut off very abruptly. Yes. It's a, you know, the screen's not very wide. And in order to see the full URL, you know, what you could have is uh, www.goodsite.com dot really bad stuff after that, with the, you know, maybe something else included as well. Yes. So you want to do is hold your finger over it so you can actually see what the full URL is before you start digging and in And we've further. seen examples where the bad guys have thought of that clearly and they've actually 
you can almost tell the device they've targeted by the length of the innocent looking stuff before you get the really bad part, right. the actual right. destination. All right, very good. Matt, let's go back to you briefly. And uh, I guess there's some new stuff coming out to uh, clandestinely collect data from your enterprise or your... <laughs> no, this, this, is, this is actually kind of interesting. Um, Sammy Kamkar, who you've probably heard of from the Sammy Worm and many, many other interesting exploits over the years, uh, has put together a, a tool, um, I think it's called Key Sweeper, and what it's doing is it's basically a hardware device you plug in about the size of a USB charger. I think he actually built it into the case for a USB phone charger, and it's designed to sniff for 2.4 gigahertz wireless signals in particular, Microsoft wireless keyboards, and decrypt the keys that are being typed and either save them to the device or send them over uh, a 2G wireless connection. Yeah, so he, he's actually weighed out the bill of materials and his, his process for developing it. It's based on a few older uh, devices and attacks, but this is really the, the, the proof of concept physical device that you can show to someone and say, hey, we actually have to worry about this because someone has built this that they walk into you know, a business, plug it in and walk out. We're owned. Wireless key logging. Exactly. And it's, wow. it's, it's interesting. He talks a bit about the, the protocol that's actually being used in the 2.4 gigahertz band is somewhat encrypted, but it's using the MAC address of the device XORed with the traffic as the encryption mechanism. And it seems that at least the first byte of that, that MAC address is always the same because it's always a Microsoft device. Mm -hmm. So that's you know cryptographic known plain text sort of thing. He's a really good write-up on the site. I recommend anybody go out and look at it for the, the technical details for how it's you know, pieced together piece by piece. Um, and it's, it's two different hardware, two or three different hardware versions depending on your budget and interest. So it's, it's I don't know, this sort of stuff is always exciting to me because yeah. it's, it's something you could have done a while ago with a laptop and a little bit of specified hardware and you know, sat down at a desk and, and done it. But now you've got it packaged and weaponized. It's just a, a drop and go sort of attack. That sounds like spy stuff. That exactly. You're talking about. I look yeah. forward to reading about it. This reminds me of the. It was power strips not too long ago. Yeah. Yep. It was a, basically a Wi-Fi sniffer, if mm -hmm. I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah. The, uh, the Pwn plug was one of them. You've, you've got a whole set right. of devices like that that are, are tailored for specific wireless or specific network technologies right. that you just plug in and go. So. Yeah. Wow. I want to thank you for those chargers, by the way. No. <laughs> They don't have the Bluco logo on them. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, again, it's a, it's just now we talked to. This is basically the second physical access type attack that we referred to today. You know, there, there's that uh, impermeable security principles that we've uh, referred to a number of times. That once you get physical access to the devices or physical access to the environment, you really have lost your control of security. So uh, I think that's one of the. You know, we need to be kind of putting the things in the context here that is if you have access to the Mac and the you know you've lost physical control of it then you've probably lost to access or the control of the uh, software this is a similar kind of situation a little more complex to deal with if you can bring something in in your pocket and you know not necessarily a trusted individual I know uh, a lot of organizations have gotten a little lax on escorting people into buildings and the activities that they're performing and so Maybe we need to up the ante a little bit here to make sure that uh, folks are, you know, trust but verify. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's important to, to see not only what yeah. are people taking out of the building when they leave, which is the, the common threat that they'd steal proprietary mm -hmm. information or something right. or a key. It's what they leave behind now that you also have to worry about. Mm -hmm. that we're going to have to up the ante on our physical security. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then, you know, there is the, uh, there, I mean, at least in the context of this scenario, uh, there are more secure protocols that could be used rather than basically broadcasting the signal. And uh, perhaps that's an option that needs to be considered as well. You know, I think Bluetooth gives you a little better security um, protection against sniffing. There's right? at least uh, a pin in some parent cases for Bluetooth. Uh, not all, as I mm -hmm. found out. Some of the cheaper hardware will have a default pin of one two three four zero 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 zero, which gives you next to no, you know, protection. In fact, I'm finding more devices with uh, requiring the pin. Really? Okay, yeah. that's that's good to hear. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here, and uh, we're going to start out with a little bit of a mystery. We've been seeing activity growing on port 4159 UDP. I don't think the activity is actually associated with where this port's registered for. Uh, what we're seeing is scan sources growing on this port. You know, John Hogeboom had been doing some uh, analysis on this topic. And, you know, as you can see from the graph, it's, uh, it's been growing. We see 30 days of activity ever since uh, about the middle of December, activity growing on this particular port. It appears to be associated with, you know, devices connected to the internet that are exhibiting basically the source of the scanning activity. So the, uh, I guess the theory is that these devices are being compromised uh, included in a botnet and used as a part of a recruiting activity to other things. What we don't really know is what really they're targeting. So if you have any insights into that, we're certainly uh, welcome your, uh, your feedback. John had done some uh, analysis into the uh, payloads associated with this, and being able to capture the payloads of the, uh, of the scanning activity and he sees 16 bytes of payload and 60 byte packets. There's some very subtle variations in the payload, although generally it's, uh, it's pretty fixed. And it's scanning basically sequentially, uh, sometimes backwards, sometimes forward, but uh, effectively not a random scanning across the network. Uh, so there are some specific biases associated with that scanning activity. As I noted a little bit earlier, pretty consistently the uh, devices that this is originating from are you know, devices that are connected to the network, be uh, security cameras or uh, perhaps home routers that are associated with this. You know, John made a note here as well that a fair portion are listing on port 7547 TCP. You know, that's uh, been a, uh, associated with that misfortune cookie that's been uh, discussed in the, uh, in the public domain recently. Chris, we've recently done some uh, investigation around this area, haven't we? You want to talk about that? You know, uh, part of the Internet of Things. Yeah, part of the inception attack was using compromised routers. And right. so uh, Waylon, the researcher on our team who was doing that, got interested in this. And over the Christmas break, he set up a, a, a honeypot using a, an ARM processor and a little embedded Linux kernel that he left vulnerable default password, you know, admin, whatever, um, on purpose. And he said within minutes, a crawler had found it and had loaded a script on it. And the first one was the Lizard Squad guys right. that, that were do, using these for DDoS. And so he says, their script was pretty dumb. It would just go out and download one payload after another and try to load it until they found one that actually worked. <laughs> kind of brute force matched the payload to the, the platform. He said, the other two that came along were more sophisticated. Hmm. But both of those were doing the same thing. They were matching a payload to his specific version of Linux and processor type. And the big takeaway for me in reading his post was he noted that out of dozens of different packages that they had for different processors and platforms, except for the Intel 8086 compatible ones, there was no detection in the AV community. 
Virustel right. had no hits on any of these because yeah. we've got a mature ecosystem for antivirus on, yeah. on the Wintel platform. Mm -hmm. That doesn't exist anywhere else. There aren't any AV companies making software for home routers and, and cameras and DVD players. And those are the things that are getting infected. And, and what do you do? I mean, do, are people going to update the firmware on those? Are we, are we going to get patches for it? It, it's just, it's like the Wild West out there. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I think, uh, you know, we had a discussion a little bit earlier about the notion of perhaps as some sort of a safety rating for internet connected devices. And I think we're really going to have to try to uh, move in that direction for the safety of the folks that are, you know, buying these devices, that is their privacy safety, the safety of their data, the safety of their, uh, of, of their systems that are sitting behind it, but also safety for others that are on the, on the internet or subject, you mentioned the Lizard Squad. They're, they're targeting these devices so that they can create a botnet for doing denial of service attacks. And uh, we certainly see a lot of that activity. And uh, we'll see a little bit later how aggressive some of this activity has become and, uh, and prolific. So it's, uh, it's getting to be, uh, I think, more serious of an issue. Much more. And, uh, and you know, just to ex expound upon this, uh, this next item here is uh, scan sources and probes on port 32764. This is a backdoor port that was apparently put in deliberately on some device. Now, I don't think it's necessarily the manufacturers themselves that deliberately put these in here, but something has put this backdoor in these devices. Again, it, it's uh, like Cisco, Linksys, Netgear, Diamond. They've got home router devices that have this backdoor in it. There's a patch for it, but apparently the patch doesn't actually get rid of the backdoor. It just kind of hides the backdoor. So you have to know the right packet to send, and then it wakes it up. That's not such a good thing. And, and so you can judge for yourself. There's a, a research paper that was put out, or a presentation that was put out on the internet. We provided the link here for you. But uh, what we're seeing is more and more sources doing scanning activity. Now, this is a little bit on and off, but we see sources doing scanning activity for this port, presumably to go out and exploit those devices or, uh, or perform some other uh, set of nefarious activity. Taking a look at the uh, top 10 most probe ports, no real surprises here. We've talked about uh, many of these previously. We'll walk through them briefly. Uh, port 135 TCP, you know, we've been seeing this probing activity for some time now. Again, another sort of mysterious one, port 135 isn't really readily used as it, as it was in the past, but there seems to be a particular actor group that's out there that's trying to find something on port 135. Followed by port 23 TCP, we're going to take a little closer look at that as we go forward. Followed by port 9064. Now, remind me, this was a proxy port, is that right? Port 9064? Yes. And we got an answer from the audience, and the answer is a yes. Uh, <laughs> hey, where's yeah. We love our audience. <laughs> yeah, actually, we have, uh, we have an audience here today, which is a rather uh, rare but uh, pleasant event. Uh, in any case, a port 9064, that's uh, hunting for proxies, uh, followed by port 22 TCP, that's uh, SSH, which is uh, looking for, again, similar to port 23, looking for uh, devices that can get a command line access. Followed by port 8080 TCP, that's generally looking for proxies as well, oftentimes to anonymize the malicious activity. Followed by port 445, uh, configure is going down, but it's not gone away yet. And then uh, port 1900 UDP, also 19 UDP, both show up on the list here. That is associated with reflection attack activity, denial of service reflection attack activity. I'd hope to actually provide sort of a composite graph of how that's trending. Probably do that next week. I wasn't able to do it in preparation for the program today. And then uh, port 3389 TCP, 
uh, that's uh, remote desktop protocol, and then finally port 80 TCP, which uh, obviously looking for those uh, dark websites out there. Next item here is uh, the top 10 most sources doing the probing, and uh, look how big port 23 is here. We're gonna take, a, again, a look at the trend associated with that, followed by port 445, we talked about that one, 6881 UDP, followed by 27015 UDP, and then again, we have a couple of ports associated with the, uh, or at least one port that's associated with the uh, reflection attack activity that showed up on the radar, port 1900 UDP. That's uh, 1900 UDP is a simple service uh, discovery protocol, which is, um, I think, uh, at least in one account, a, a poorly conceived protocol that's intended to support uh, universal plug and play. Unfortunately, on some devices, all too many devices exposed to the internet, as well as internally. So, uh, and invariably one of the problems that we've been seeing here. So, next thing I wanted to share with you here is the scan sources. This is the number of source addresses that are detected doing scanning activity on port 23 TCP, looking back the last year and a half, 18 months of activity shown here. And you can see that clearly that the trend is not in a good direction. So, when you see a source that's scanning, it's a basically indication they're probably compromised in a part of a botnet. And we're measuring not just in hundreds or thousands, we're measuring in hundreds of thousands here. This is a first, in fact, from my point of view, that is generally what we've seen in the past. We've seen botnets that are, you know, on the order of 30,000, 40,000, not an order of 150,000. So uh, this is, uh, we're breaking new records in terms of the number of sources. And it's, uh, I think, directly accountable to this Internet of Things uh, becoming more prevalent and uh, used in uh, denial of service activity. We've been identified, we've identified and are tracking a number of botnets, not just one, but several, Lizard Squad being one of those, and I think uh, there have been some activities to try to block that. Uh, but there are certainly others that are doing denial of service attack activity. And oftentimes it's kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're really attacking just uh, other gamers or gaming service providers, and uh, on occasion, uh, relatively large attacks. And uh, I, I'm not even sure that in some cases these attackers really even know how big the attacks are that they are generating. Uh, we, we've seen some uh, situations where it looks like they're doing a test attack against themselves and uh, presumably to see how big the attack was. But I think what is happening is they're, they're not seeing the entire attack. There's a bottleneck farther up. They have a machine that has like one gigabit interface or something, and they might only see 100 megabits per second of traffic because of a bottleneck farther up in the network they don't know about. And they think, man, I've got to get more resources. And so they crank it up and uh, are, are consequently creating uh, other kinds of problems on the network in the, in the course of their activities. So. Uh, in any case, uh, this is something, I think the, the notion of uh, safety of devices is gonna be something we're gonna need to pay closer attention to. When you, when you see a, a graph like that, that's one of the things Waylon mentioned in his Internet of Things post, is that most of the scanning that was hitting his little honeypot was coming from other compromised devices. And so several of these are set up not just to infect, but like classical worms, where they, they, they go looking mm -hmm. for other things. And so he said, you, you better not think that you can take a new device, hook it to the internet, and then configure it. He said, configure it offline because you don't have a very small window before it's going to get infected. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I shared with you a little bit earlier, and uh, I think, you know, I'd written a blog post a couple of years ago about some things that really need to be done with these devices to make them more palatable for the internet. You know, obviously, one of the big problems that's been happening is they're being put on the internet and they have services being offered, things like Character Generator, which has no basic function other than 
you know, currently to facilitate denial of service attacks, those shouldn't be exposed to the internet. The devices need to be locked down a little bit better right off, off and this isn't even something that end users have the opportunity to fix. Uh, they need to be locked down better right off the shelf. They need some means to be able to control your password better. That is, to just simply put it on the network and perhaps it not even have a documented default password is a, is a problem. Uh, you know, sometimes it is documented and the user is supposed to know about it. It should either force a password change or the default password be, should be something that is not something you can ascertain from the network. Uh, it's maybe printed on the device or something uh, along those lines. Um, uh, you know, other options around this, uh, patchwork, patching is an important aspect of it. That is, uh, a lot of devices don't have any patching. I, I, we mentioned earlier uh, the port, uh, the 32764 scanning activity. There's a patch that's out there, but most likely most of those devices have never been patched to, uh, to, to fix that problem. So. I was just going to say, I think that the, the technologists, uh, in the past there was, a, I think, a broader gap between the technologists and regular folks who aren't mm -hmm. technologists, and uh, that gap still exists. Yep. It's narrowing in some respects. The kids are growing up with a little bit more technical knowledge, mm -hmm. but still, you've got to understand that a housewife or a husband, an accountant, they may not know how to even uh, patch their router. Right. Well, much less any of the Internet of Thing devices yeah, that are out there. Absolutely true. Oh. Do we do true confessions on this show? <laughs> you can confess whatever you like. <laughs> were, there, were there any bad guys that may be watching? So my Blu-ray DVD player is yeah. a Linux device, yeah. right? And I'm a security guy, and so when I sit down with my family to watch a movie, and the Blu-ray player pops up a little interface saying, hey, there's an update available for your player, of course, I ignore it and watch the movie with my family. <laughs> and I don't remember to yeah. go back and update yeah, the player. I mean, it's like, true. we, even yeah. people that know better don't really know better or don't do better. It's just a comparative or a comparison and contrast. Xbox won't let you go any further. <laughs> so, you know, Microsoft, I think, has learned that lesson. And I think a lot of the other manufacturers, they're just embarking on dealing with software updates. I am actually encouraged to find that they offer an update. Yes. Yeah. Because a lot of these devices, you know, I think a, a big part of it, to your, your point, James, people do not conceive of these things as computers. They don't conceive of them as running software. It's a device, it's a thing. And uh, I even had, a, just recently, heard somebody do a presentation, an authoritative person on Internet of Things, claiming that these devices don't have software. And so uh, it, there's a, a, clearly a perception issue that needs to be improved upon. And, uh, you know, software patching should be almost automatic, if not automatic, and, you know, at least offer it. It just needs to happen. Yeah. It just needs to happen. It just yeah. needs to happen, so. Okay, I'm done ranting. <laughs> <laughs> That's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and then if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech Channel. It's att.com slash threattrack. It's also available on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. Do you have a, a, a Twitter handle? At BC Malware Guy, where it's BC underscore malware underscore guy. All right, so uh, if you'd like to, uh, to get Chris trending as well. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Chris. Thank you, James. I thank you. really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Matt. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back with a new episode next week, and until then, Keep your network safe.
views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.